Welcome to Practically Political. Happy summer. I'm Dave Spencer. And I'm Carrie Sheffield. Let's get to it. All right, Dave. So there's a fascinating character who I've been tracking, Vivek Ramaswamy. He's rising in the polls quickly and he's on track to replace Ron DeSantis as number two behind Donald Trump. If you look at it, the betting markets, he's already there. Um, what do you think about Vivek? And do you think he has a shot at the GOP nomination? And if not that, what about the VP for Trump? Well, let me let me sort of do the micro and then the macro. First of all, I would say the reason that it's more that DeSantis is sinking more than he's rising. So I think they're both at about 12% and DeSantis has come down as he's got presidential campaign continues to flounder. And anyone who doubts me, uh, Gavin Newsom has been itching to debate him for months and he's turned it and he hasn't even responded. But now that his campaign is floundering, he's actually said that he'd be willing to do it. So that's, that shows you where he is. But answering your question, you know, I have a real issue with someone. Again, these people are trying to be Trumpier than Trump or to the right of Trump or Trump without the drama or Trump light. And I don't think any of it is going to work. I think essentially that if you're going to beat Donald Trump, you have to run through him, run over him. That's what Chris Christie is trying to do. And to a lesser extent, Asa Hutchinson is trying to do. But uh, as far as Vivek goes, I, I really don't care for his policies. And we'll talk about that in a second. I do give him credit. He's a good communicator. He's charismatic. I, I think he's someone that is uh, that is able to has been able to make an impact. And he's been kind of the darling of con- conservative radio. But, you know, if you start doing a, even a partial dive into his policies, I mean, you'll see that he wants to get rid of the FBI. He wants to get rid of the IRS, the Department of Education. You know, when he says that we're having a national identity crisis, which again is what he blames on what he calls the, I love these terms people make up, the new secular religions, which is not just the wokeism and the gender identity, but also is climatism and covetism, whatever those two, whatever those two things may be. So, uh, and, and, you know, it's a real head scratcher too, because he talks about the youth vote being so important, but he wants to raise the voting age to 25. I mean, we just raised it from 20 or lowered it from 21 down to 18 with the 26th amendment. I thought the idea was to have as many people vote as possible. Well, that's at least the democratic idea these days. It's not the Republican idea. So overall, I'm not very impressed. And the thing that I'm least impressed is he won't take on Trump and he wants to pardon Trump. And, you know, again, if you're going to pardon someone, there needs to be some accountability. The only other example, obviously, is Richard Nixon, who not only resigned, but he also said that he let the American people down. I have not seen one scintilla of accountability from Donald Trump for his entire life. So I don't uh, expect to see that happening now. But what say you? I, I like him a lot. I, I think he's a breath of fresh air. Uh, and I think he's he's something different. Like he's he's uh, he's unique. And just a few little notes on the raising the voting age. So he said he wants to raise it to 25, but but he will give exceptions if you are serving in the military, if you're serving as a first responder, or if you can pass the same citizenship test that is required to become a U.S. citizen. And I think that's actually pretty innovative 
because it, it shows that you're he's rewarding people who actually take American democracy seriously. And, and part of why we lowered the age to 18 was because we had so many young men primarily serving in the military and they were, you know, giving their lives. Um, but but now we're seeing enrollment and recruitment declining. So I think what he's doing by by signaling with this is that we actually want to make it something that is, uh, you know, that it is something of value, you know, and, and looking at other countries like in Israel, for example, they have two years of mandatory military service for everybody, male or female um, in the IDF. And I think that that promotes this value of service and sacrifice. So that's really what he's getting at. And I think it's great. Um, I also think for the, uh, you know, basically he wants to streamline when you're talking about more than 2 million people working for the federal government and the fastest growth areas in GDP right now, it's government. That's, I mean, that's a recipe for a sluggish country to become more like Europe and, and these countries that are way too top heavy. So I, I think that's really what he's getting at. And he says he wants to to get rid of duplications, that a lot of these same agencies are doing the same thing. So streamline it and move. Such as what? What's well, duplicative? What what, was she, what should we get rid of? Or what does he want to get rid of? Well, you mentioned the FBI, for example, and he said, okay, well, a lot of these same duties are actually already uh, just move, move these same personnel. Well, first of all, he says, he says there's a, a large swath of the FBI uh, management that isn't even agents. They're not even gathering intel. They're just bureaucrats. So move, he said, just basically remove that layer and move the actual agents and the intelligence gatherers into other areas. Uh, like, for example, even just like moving them into, uh, you know, Treasury or or Homeland Security or like there's a lot of people or agencies that are doing the same thing. And it would just add an investigative arm to it. That's what he's saying. And look, I'm not saying all his his proposals are perfect, but I, but I do like his mentality that we need to streamline. And, and that's what I think is remarkable is that he built this nine billion dollar publicly traded company from scratch He's only 37 years old. He's the child of immigrants from India. He's brown and he's Hindu. So he cuts against the grain of all these false claims of like white Christian nationalism because he understands American exceptionalism. So that's, I don't know, I could keep going on. Well, I, a, couple, a couple of things. I mean, you're conflating two issues when you talk about national service and you, and you talk about voting. Okay. Yes, Israel does, with the exception of the, the Hasidics, require service. And I've said for a long time that I think everyone, when they graduate from high school in the U.S., should do a year of national service. It can be the military. It can be the Peace Corps. It can be volunteering for inner city kids. It can be doctors without borders, whatever. But I think service is important. My In my parents' generation, everybody went into the service. That's what you did. So we agree on that. But this idea that you're going to limit the ability of people to vote, once again, is just going along with all these other uh, things that have been done in the States where they try to make it harder for people to vote. Again, we don't take rights away in this country. And I figure after the Dobbs decision, the Republican Party would have learned that. We expand rights. So, you know, if he wants to have the citizenship test and all this stuff for 18-year-olds, well, we can we can talk about that. But And he also talks about, well, the youth vote is so important. I'm going to have like a 1980 Reagan landslide, which, first of all, is clueless because this country is so divided that even Ronald Reagan, who, by the way, would be tossed out of today's Republican Party on his derriere. But even if Ronald Reagan were running today, yes, he would. Uh, he's, he was a pragmatist. There's no room for pragmatist in the party. 
But anyway, he would he wouldn't have that same landslide today because the country is so polarized. So it's it's detached from reality. And uh, again, how are you going to get the youth vote if you're making it harder for them to vote? They're going to come out and support you, even if you even if they can still vote. It's just ludicrous. It's psychotic. So I think that and the other issue, too, is that, again, Donald Trump has proven people running a business is not like running the government. Businessmen don't make good presidents. In fact, congressmen don't make make very good presidents. Governors make good presidents. We need a governor. I think Joe Biden should get out of the way and let Roy Cooper, Andy Bashir, or even Gretchen Whitmer run. And I think obviously Trump is so noxious, we don't even need to go into that. So I, I think I think the guy is a charlatan. Uh, I don't think he has the experience to, to do it. But we'll see. As I said, you know, this race, anything goes. Would I prefer him over Trump? Yes, but I would prefer any nominee over Trump. So we'll see how we'll see how the cards play out on that one. But but my question for you is that Devin Archer, who is Hunter Biden's close business associate, has testified that there was no proof that Joe Biden directly benefited from Hunter Biden's deals and that Hunter was not only that, but he was actually trying to sell the illusion that he had access to his dad by getting his dad to get on phone calls to say hi to these people. But the bottom line is, and, you know, James Comer, who, to put it mildly, as head of the oversight oversight committee in the House, is not the sharpest tool in the shed. He's been saying, oh, well, we're, we're sure hope we're going to find that smoking gun. Meanwhile, one of his witnesses they couldn't find and the whole thing has just turned into a joke. So is the right finally ready to let go of this Hunter Biden thing and focus on things that matter? What say you, Carrie Sheffield? Well, uh, there's Hunter Biden generally, and then there's the Devin Archer thing. So I can talk about Hunter first and then Devin Archer. But in terms of Hunter Biden generally, I mean, the fact that his plea deal fell apart, uh, you're going to still see more of that. And then also there is the fact that the Hunter Biden laptop story was determinative, according to various studies, it would have been determinative in the 2020 election. And the fact that Twitter and media companies suppressed that story is significant. So I don't think it should just go away with the magical wand. I think it gets to many deep systemic chronic problems of media bias against stories that are important that need to be heard about by Hunter Biden has uh, you know, peddled access. So I think the fact also that, um, you know, the Devin Archer situation, uh, my, my understanding is that uh, there was a gap in the income tax for Joe Biden of about $5 million. And that he, that Devin Archer, as I understand it, testified that Joe Biden did receive some money um, I believe it was from Burisma or some type of Ukrainian business deal that there was money that was given to Joe Biden. So I, I think that that is significant and that should warrant more investigation. Don't you? Well, again, I have never heard of Joe Biden uh, receiving this money. And so I would that's a, for a new one to me. But I will simply say Joe Biden is a modest man. He lives a modest life. He doesn't have fancy homes. I mean, he has an old Corvette. So if all this money is going to him, I, I don't know what the heck he's doing with it because it sure isn't showing up in his lifestyle. And again, as far as, as Hunter goes, look, I'm making no excuses for Hunter. And Joe probably, or the president probably has been a little careless in the, in, and a little lackluster. 
And but I think we should also remember that when a lot of this stuff with Hunter was going on, Joe's other son, Bo, was dying of cancer. So he had a lot of he had some distractions, to put it mildly, to to, to deal with. And it was too bad because Bo was the good son. You know, if he had to lose one, that was a really sad one to lose. I, and Hunter is a pathetic drug addict. And yes, he's peddled the Biden name and, you know, done cocaine off the butts of hookers and all that stuff. I'm not making any apologies for the guy. You know, he's a, he's a sad story. But the bottom line is there is no proof that Joe Biden directly benefited from any of Hunter Biden's business deals. That's what I wish Comer and the rest of his house buddies would let go of. But I'll give you the last word. Yeah, well, I, I do think that $5 million payment to Biden should be investigated further. And there's, there is also evidence uh, that the $5 million to Joe Biden. Um, and then there's also the fact that there's evidence that Hunter Biden paid quite a few of Joe Biden's bills. And there's evidence of that. Well, where was Hunter getting this money? From peddling off the Joe Biden name. So it became a circular loop. And I think those are worth looking into it. And that's the ironic thing. You know, Donald Trump Jr. said that if I did a fraction of the things that Hunter Biden did, my father would put me in Guantanamo Bay, you know, and that and that is not the case with with Hunter Biden. Joe Biden. What about Jared Kushner? What about Jared Kushner? Hunter Biden compels in comparison to him. We can disagree on that. Also, it's not his okay. father, but his father, you know, his father had his own challenges. Um, but the Hunter Biden situation and, and also the fact that, that he refused to acknowledge his own granddaughter. And I thought Maureen Dowd had a wonderful column about it. Um, I don't think it's the last that we've seen a Hunter Biden. And I and I agree with you, though, Dave, the focus should be on how this affects the presidency. And the fact that, look, I have compassion actually on Hunter for you know, as a drug addict, people who have addictions, they need treatment. Um, addiction is a disease. Um, but as far as enabling an addict, that's a big problem. And, and allowing an addict to use your name and giving you kickbacks, to me, that's a red flag, but, but we'll see. So, but my second question for you, Dave, is we just saw that America got its second AAA downgrade ever in U.S. history. Uh, this was from Fitch the rating agency, which was my former competitor. I used to work at Moody's, which is now the only big rating agency that still has, you know, the AAA rating. Um, but Fitch blamed the debt ceiling brinkmanship in part, which didn't sit well with me because to me, it seemed like they were trying to blame the GOP when it was the GOP was the ones that were trying to negotiate a more sustainable fiscal path. I do agree with what Fitch said more big picture though, that US, the US needs to get our fiscal house in order. But to me, it seemed excessive to, to go after basically the people who were trying to to have the debt ceiling be uh, a mechanism to have this conversation. What do you think? Well, I would say, first of all, I do think that the irrespective of what you think of the deal, I thought that both the president and Speaker Kevin McCarthy behaved like adults and they got a deal done and they saved us. You know, they brought us back from the cliff. So they both deserve credit for that. And, uh, you know, that was politics, at least for a split second working. So that's good. Uh, as far as our debt, look, we've been talking about this forever for a long time. Uh, there's a certain point at that at which people are going to say, even the United States, you can't borrow anymore. And what really bothered me about the debt ceiling negotiations was not the terms of the deal, 
but they were negotiating over what was basically one sixth of the budget carry, right? Because you can't touch entitlements. And I've said on this show before, I think it was very irresponsible of the president to, even though he got a political win at the state of the union to bring up, Oh, you're not going to touch social security and Medicare. We have to. And in 2034, there's going to be mandatory cuts in social security. So if we don't do it, it's the old Amco ad, right? You can pay me now, or you can pay me a lot more, a lot more later. So, and then defense is off the table, right? So you have one sixth of the budget. So it's, it's a joke. So the Republican policies or whatever ideas they had to reduce spending, again, it's, it's, it's such a small sliver of the budget. Until we address entitlements, we are not going to get our spending under control. And there's no indication that uh, we're in anywhere close to doing that. So I think, frankly, we deserve the downgrade. I don't think much of the credit agencies because they slapped triple AAA ratings on all this junk that helped fuel the Great Recession in 2008. But uh, in this case, I do agree. And we're over $32 trillion already. And as I said, uh, it's not the amount, but it's we. I don't see us anywhere close to really getting a hold on the problem. What do you think? I mean, I, I do think we do have a huge fiscal problem. We're totally in agreement on that. Like we need to get our house in order. I agree with you on the entitlements. I think that the Republicans and the Democrats both are just being chicken about this. Uh, and I like Paul Ryan. You know, I did some projects with him. He was one of the, the rare Republicans who was saying what needs to be done on this. And and you're right. It, it's going to be automatic. So I, the, the Wall Street Journal had a great op-ed about this. And uh, the writer called it, he called it the Biden-Trump Social Security cut, because even though neither candidate wants to say they're for it, it's going to happen if they don't do something more gradual. So I'm totally with you on there. I think, though, as far as like the ability to actually service the debt, that that's not even close to being in question. And that's kind of the, the dispute that I have uh, about that methodology. But again, I'm coming from Moody's and that's a competitor to Fitch. So we can disagree on that. Well, and, and again, we we mentioned this on the show when we were talking about the debt ceiling before is that every 1% increase in interest rates is a $300 billion increase in debt service on a $30 trillion debt. So I don't think we've come to grips with the fact that the rise in interest rates is going to saddle us with another trillion dollars a year, at least in debt service for the next few years, just on what we already have. So there are a few senators. And by the way, one of the reasons Donald Trump was elected president was he was the first Republican who, unlike Paul Ryan, said, I'm not going to touch entitlements. Now, that may have been good politics, but again, it's bad fiscal policy. And he was responsible for $8 trillion, more than a quarter of the debt that we had, which is the most ever in any four-year term. So, And then, of course, Biden's fueled the inflation. So I think the whole thing is, is a mess. And um, I think that this is just, to be honest, this should be a canary in the coal mine to us because um, it's only going to get worse from here if we don't stay in our house in order. And I applaud senators like Bill Cassidy and a few of them, people that have had the courage to, to tell the American people that, you know, if we don't do something on our own, it's going to be done for us. And I, and I think if you talk to a lot of 30-year-olds, they don't think they're, they're going to be getting Social Security anyway. So I, don't, I think because the low expectations are there, there's a chance to change the deal. 
where instead of a, a defined benefit, it's a defined, a defined contribution. And that should be the same with all pensions as well. But anyway, my question for you is, Karl Rove is still very optimistic that Donald Trump will not be the nominee. Now, obviously, it seems like with every indictment, uh, his numbers go up, his fundraising goes up. Ron DeSantis, as I predicted and many has predicted, uh, it's hard when you don't like people to be an effective candidate. So I don't think he's going to go very far. You have Vivek, you've got a lot of other candidates running, but do you see any way that Trump will not get the nomination? And uh, even though you said you would vote for him, I don't think he's your first choice. So who would you like to see? Well, I'm, I'm going to see Karl Rove next week at an event, so I, I can ask him about this. And if you have, and I, I think you you probably saw him recently too, but um, I think the, uh, for me, I, I really like Tim Scott. I really like Vivek. Uh, those are probably my two favorites. Um, but yes, I would vote for Trump if he is the nominee. Um, I think what's really interesting is that you have Barack Obama recently having lunch with Joe Biden and saying that Trump is a very formidable candidate against the incumbent president and that, you know, Barack Obama is scared about it. So that's, uh, I think, part of why the, you know, the GOP sees the durability of Trump that for a lot of people, the indictments are actually from their perspective, if, if the roles were reversed, playing, you know, the the movie in a different direction, if it was incumbent President Trump trying to, you know, or his DOJ overseeing the arraignment of Hillary Clinton and the charging and potentially throwing her in prison. And I know, I know we've had debates about her charges versus things that, that Trump did, but the reality is that for tens of millions of people, you can't dismiss how troubling that is that the incumbent president wants to imprison his chief political rival. That just sits wrong with a lot of people, including Vivek. He's called it a banana republic move. So I know you don't like it, Dave, but that that no, 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 Carrie. People think Donald Trump yeah. said two weeks before the election he asked his he asked his Department of Justice to arrest Joe Biden. So this is this another one of these ridiculous false equivalencies that you know that you Trumpsters keep putting forward. And to again to compare Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump is just ridiculous. I mean, we're talking 78 felony counts. And what's so frustrating for me is you look at someone like Kevin McCarthy, who after January 6th admitted exactly what the president did. He knew Trump was responsible for it. He knew he, he incited it. And now he's going against it. You know, he's saying, oh, this is just the weaponization. So, you know, first these guys attack, thanks to Trump, the integrity of our elections. And now they're going after the integrity of our judicial system, which is the last uh, system, uh, really the last reputable system that we have, which is already, thanks to the Supreme Court, not in the best reputational shape that it's been in. So it's just so disappointing. And they're, and they're doing it to defend this, this, this disgraceful man. Obviously, the reason is that they're not scared of Donald Trump. They're scared of his voters. And there are these uh, people in the base that are blindly loyal to Trump. And look, I've been one who said, and David Brooks just wrote a great column about this. You know, these a lot of these people in Washington try to blame 
the people, Trumpsters, oh, they're bigots, they're racist. Well, you look at this, our so-called meritocratic system and whether it's, you know, the Vietnam War, uh, people from high school that were working class went into service and were, many of them were killed, whereas the wealthy people got deferments or busing in Boston. You know, the working class neighborhoods got busing, but the elite neighborhoods didn't. So there's a lot of blame to go around here. And again, I've always said is whatever you think of Trump, he's the symptom. He's not the problem. It's populism that created Donald Trump. But putting all that aside, to see people like Kevin McCarthy just sell out their own country is really nauseating. I'll give you the last word. Well, I mean, I do think as far as Trump on January 6th, I agree he should have been more forceful, more quickly in urging the, the rioters to go home. But it is important to note that the morning of, he said, I want you to go peacefully. That's such you know? BS. That was the one time the rest of the speech was antagonistic and he was building them up uh, beforehand and talk to people in January 6th who were in prison. They'll say, oh, I did it for the president. I did it because Trump wanted me to. So I don't know why you keep trying to uh, excuse January 6th or Donald oh, Trump for January 6th me. because not even Republicans are doing that anymore. Well, I, I think it's problematic because it's basically like, like for example, should we blame Billions of dollars in property damage, dozens of lives during the rioting for BLM in the summer of 2020. Dozens of people died. You know, you had uh, David Dorn in St. Louis. He was moonlighting, uh, guarding his friend's pawn shop by day. He was a cop. He was murdered in during this rioting when you had people looting and destroying their these businesses in the like in the chaos. Should we blame? People like Kamala Harris, who who bailed out those BLM writers, should we blame Bernie Sanders for his 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 rhetoric on class warfare? Should we blame? I, I just think that the the it, it's it's you're getting into First Amendment territory, and that's really where I think the crux of this case is going to lie. And uh, so we'll just have to see. Well, again, you know that that gets to compare BLM to January six goes so far past the false equivalency that it's a false non-equivalency. Look, BML, BLM is, a, is not an honorable organization and there was no excuse without rioters, but this was not attack. This is not an attack on our democracy. This is not trying to overturn a free and fair election. I mean, the two are not even in the, in, in the same league. So again, yes, there's a lot of blame to go around for, for, for what was, what happened during the summer of 2020. But again, it's a it's a total false equivalency. And again, yes, free speech. Donald Trump had the right to say that the election was stolen, even though he knew he, that it wasn't. And he had the right to say a lot of things. But again, just like you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, just like to defrauding people, which he did to the American people, that's not free speech. Trying to deny people their votes, that's not free speech. Conspiring against the United States government, that's not free speech. So again, we'll see. I, I think it's a good case. I think that Jack Smith has laid it out very well. He's focused on things that I, I think are most pertinent. But, you know, the wheels of justice grind slowly. But I hope this case will be will be tried before uh, before the election. But uh, unfortunately, I'm not hopeful. What say you? 
Well, we'll see. Um, and I would say the BLM writers, in my perspective, they were a threat to democracy because part of the balance of democracy is the executive branch and the ability to enforce our laws. And when you have people overtly trying to overthrow the execution of our laws, to me, that is a threat to democracy. You also have them taking over like CHOP or CHAZ or whatever they call it, the, you know, the, the, the anarchy zone um, in you know a downtown city. You also had some of them in other places attacking government federal buildings. To me, that that's a that's a, a threat to democracy, you know? And so I I think we have to think about it that way. Um I also think the the you know people saying that it was a coup, I mean that's just not that that's not true at all. Um I think it, it was trying to disrupt federal proceedings and that the people who attacked the buildings and attacked the police, they should be imprisoned. Absolutely. There's no excuse for January 6th and what happened. None at all. Um, I, I think that the, but I, I do think that the, again, the connection between a politician's words and how people interpret them and behave, it is a murky area. And it's, I think it's a novel legal theory, but again, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what happens in the case. Okay. Well, that's going to do it for us. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Practically Political. Hope your summer is going well. I'm Dave Spencer. And I'm Carrie Sheffield, and we will catch you next time. Wow.